Red Business with Jonathan Healy. Hi there, thanks very much for joining us. Coming up on this episode, we're going to talk about tackling menopause in the workplace and also the new book that aims to have students reaching for the stars. And speaking of stars, when you think of a space centre, you mightn't automatically think of Middleton in East Cork, but the National Space Centre is down there. It's based in a place called Elfordstown and is doing tremendous work uh, regarding space exploration. And now they're calling on the public to help with donations for remedial works for what they call the Big Dish, which stands outside the centre. Rory Fitzpatrick is the CEO of the National Space Centre. Hiya, Rory. How are you? I'm doing well, enjoying the weather. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a terrible run of late. But I suppose explorers of space care not for these uh, land-borne things like rain uh, because you're looking up. Absolutely. And it doesn't affect the the performance of the dish at all in the frequencies that it's in. So that's fine. Tell us what the dish does. Well, at the moment, it does nothing. Um, Originally... (laughs) Originally, the the dish was built to take telephone traffic from Europe to America. Um, in the early 80s, if people uh, my age and older would remember the time lag you had calling America, that time lag was created by the time it took for your telephone signal to get to a satellite dish, to get beamed to a satellite across the Atlantic, land over in America and get put back into the network and then make its return path. So, um, and because the satellites were 33,000 kilometers out, it took just with the speed of light, it took quite a long time for the signal to bounce around. Now, originally in the 80s, all telephone traffic was sent through Goonhilly in the UK. And this was uh, costing a lot of money. So the European telecoms decided, you know what, we're going to make our own system. And they got together and Telecom Air and Teletalia, Deutsche Telecom, France Telecom, all of them got together and set up a new company, the European Telephone Satellite Company. And that was then tasked with building a new infrastructure for communicating to America. Right. So Middleton um, became very, very important then in transatlantic communications and presumably did very well for years until they found a better way to do it and the dish became a little redundant. Uh, spot on. Couldn't have said it better myself. It, it went into operation in 84 and ran from 84 to 1997. So between that time, it could carry 300 simultaneous telephone calls to America. And when it's crazy now when we look at the communications between us and the States every day now, it's just so much more than this. Um, and it ran till 97. And then when the fibre came across the Atlantic, technically it became obsolete um, once the cable was in. But because people want to have a dual system for a while to make sure it's all robust, it ran until 2005. And then in 2005, it was switched off and and mothballed. Yeah, I and mean, it would be very sad to think that nothing more would come of it, but it still exists. When did the National Space Centre get set up and what else is down there? Okay, so we took over the site in 2010 and we bought it off Aircom in 2015. Um, we operate loads of uh, satellite uplinks for satellite operators. Uh, we have a lot of clients both on geosynchronous satellites which float across the equator and they'd be mainly broadcast and also quite a few Earth observation customers that are uh, picking up satellites that are looking down. Uh, And we also have uh, LEO satellites that are running internet and uh, communications platforms 
uh, now. Okay, so in other words, there's a lot of heavy lifting going on down there still. But what hope have you got for the big dish? I mean, if, if it's not sending phone calls to the United States, is it anything other than a big ornament? Well, it, it, it is a, a magnificent piece of engineering, a 220-ton, 32-metre uh, antenna sitting on the roof of our main building here in Elphinstown. So it is, just from an engineering perspective, fantastic. There's only about eight or nine of them left in the world that are available to use right now. And the really big thing now is that uh, while that frequency isn't being used for terrestrial communications anymore or even local communications with satellite, uh, the moon and Mars are now within reach. And as we start traveling to the moon and Mars, this is going to become a key thing communicating to them. And this is where the dish is going to fit in. Now, where we hit a, a, a difficult spot is that it's very hard right at the moment to get funding for refurbing this. America, the NASA would like to use the dish, but they will only use it if it's refurbed because it's not an American asset. So they can't spend money on it, but they will hire it as a service. So we need to get it to a level that they would be happy with. Um, it needs a lot of cleaning. It needs painting. And, it, it you know, it costs up to €100,000 just to clean and paint the dish. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's the scale of this is phenomenal. We reckon on a five to six phase plan, it will take about two and a half million in funding to get it back online. Okay, I'm looking at um, pictures of it on, on Google Maps. It's huge. It's absolutely yeah. massive. You've got a big transmitter site, which people probably would be more familiar with seeing on the horizon down there. But the dish literally eclipses the entire building underneath it. Um, you know, you're hoping to raise this money. Who are you hoping to get it off? Well, th- this is the exciting thing is Jordan Wright, the, the angry astronaut, is starting a fundraising uh, run to his American subscribers live from the site. So that's that's going to be great fun to see what kind of support we get. And that that will be into the American and, and into, actually his his subscriber base is an international subscriber base because a lot of the people that are into space are just you know people from all over the world. Um, so what we're looking for is just initially to raise, you know, 50 or 100,000 euro to clean down and get the the, the paint spots done and, and just stop any corrosion that's going on at the moment. That's the first job. And then once that's done, we have a couple of international uh, partners and we're looking for, uh, you know, money from Science Foundation Ireland and from European Space Agency. Anyone else we can get help on this on the road to get it back working. Um, our plan is that over the next five years, we would get the dish back fully functional. Yeah, That's I, the target. We have lots of businesses in Ireland, uh, some of whom uh, will use satellites. Others, you know, uh, are part of the economic fabric of our community. Um, are you appealing to them maybe to, to well, root around and see if they can find money down the back of the couch? You, you laugh at this one. Actually, last night I was talking to somebody in Cork. And they were recounting the Marconi story and they were saying, you should need, you need to talk to Jameson. And I was thinking, what? And it turns out that Marconi was actually a Jameson um, and that the first communications were, were funded by the Jameson family. So uh, as Jameson is only kind of two and a half kilometers down the road from us here, I think we'll have to talk to their marketing people and see, <laughs> can we re-ignite re, uh, their communications pedigrees? <laughs> uh, R- Rory, I, by the sounds of it, you love your job working down there in the National Space Centre. What, what, we're going to talk in a minute about dream careers. Was this yours? Um, no, like it's it's really funny. I kind of fell into it. Um, like obviously, as a kid growing up in the seventies and eighties, you had Star Trek and Star Wars, and you know, it, 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 it was all around. Um, and 
I never really imagined that I'd end up working day to day in the space industry. Um, and it, the thing that's funny about it is the last exam I passed was my junior cert. So like the, the <laughs> physicists and the engineers that I'm dealing with at time, it's, it's hard work to keep up with them because they are the, the, the brightest people in the room quite often. So, yeah. But it's it is fun and and it's fascinating. Like when you look at the at the exciting thing, and this is one thing I would say to all the young people out there listening the, to to your show, is that we have one or two engineers and physicists on site, but we've lots of other people. There's people doing secretarial, doing admin, doing legal, doing day to day office management. So, like across all the space companies, there's every job you have in every other company. And, you know, Rocket Labs have people that do every job in every other company. So if people want to work in space, the best thing to do is just apply to space companies. Yeah, well, it just reminds you of that uh, that very famous quote uh, when JFK met somebody at the site of of the lunar launch. And he says, what do you do here? He was pushing a brush around the floor. He says, well, sir, I'm putting a man on the moon, uh, which kind of sums up space exploration. Everybody has their role to play. If you want to do something to save the big dish, thebigdish.ie is is the website. Rory Fitzpatrick, CEO of the National Space Centre. It's been a pleasure. Best of luck with it. Thank you very much. Well, whatever about getting them interested in a career in space, trying to decide on a college course after doing the Leaving Cert can be stressful for a lot of students. And a new study conducted by the Hayes Culloden Group in conjunction with STEM Southwest has found that three out of four TY students are worried about their future career path. As a result of the findings, Susan Hayes Culloden of the Hayes Culloden Group and Marguerite O'Sullivan of STEM Southwest have compiled a book called Engineering in the World, which is aimed at TY students and is going to be available in every school across the country and Susan is with us now. Hiya Susan. Thank you for having me. Lovely to have you on. So you're aiming this at what 16 to 18 year olds? That's right. Is The purpose there just as you correctly said is that this is written and sponsored by Johnson & Johnson, John Siskin Sons and Cork County Council so that it can indeed as you said Jonathan go into every school in the country and then it is a resource the teachers can take and they can use in TY in whatever shape or form they might want whether it is to give an, an introduction into the Leaving Cert subject of engineering, show how physics comes to life, show various different career profiles of people who started in one way and moved in a different direction, get them ready for the Leaving Cert or simply try out a range of practical subjects. That's mm. the purpose. I, look, I, I, I took an irrational dislike to physics uh, in transition year for some reason. I don't know why I did. Obviously, my career went in a very different direction. But w- when you're a teenager, you can you can get a turn against something that, that probably doesn't reflect the subject itself. It's just maybe how it's taught. Well, I actually have a different story to you, Jonathan, in that I did physics for leaving starts. I went on to do it and, and I left it after that. But I found it a fascinating way to explain the world. And little did I know that I would be sitting here talking to you today, talking about exactly not just how it explains the world, but how it's evolved an awful lot from there. You're right. Sometimes it comes down to how it's taught and sometimes it is, how does this connect to the real world? And I find that's something that students often struggle with is if I'm learning X, how does this connect with my day to day life? But it's not just students have that struggle. I also find that when we talk to industry is there can be a disconnect maybe between a Leaving Cert subject syllabus or maybe the way a college course is designed and the needs of industry now. Like if I was to talk to anybody in industry today, they would say, we need to understand how AI works in smart manufacturing. We need to understand how to make processes more efficient. We need to understand how to make materials more sustainable. Like that is what is fundamentally crossing the desks 
of engineers and, and broader STEM careers right around the world. So that's what we sought to do. It is to be able to connect engineering in the world right back to where people are in TY and as mm-hmm. they're making decisions about leaving certain subjects, but also then show the breadth of opportunity that's available. Like among the fastest growing areas of employment today, Jonathan, are green jobs or jobs that have a focusing on, as I mentioned, how to make things sustainable. And of course, there's a really big worry about how could AI be replacing jobs or maybe not replacing jobs directly, but re- replacing tasks as well. Yeah. All of that is what we sought to bring to life. But one of the things I've noticed in recent times is that, the, you know, the way the world works is changing, um, even in terms of construction and more women are getting involved in construction, not kind of putting bricks on top of each other on the site, but in the engineering and in the design. But they are very much in the minority when it comes to women in, in that particular workplace why is that still and how can you get more young girls interested in the stem sector so they can follow the likes of you into very fulfilling careers well i'm grateful to say i work with tens of thousands of teenagers at this stage every year and there's a few reasons that happens number one and i'm not saying number one in order but just to, to give a list of things number one is is having role models is because you're right jonathan you often like you can't be what you can't see and or i'm certainly not saying women are invisible in construction or broader engineering but if you don't have as many women to follow in one's footsteps well then you may feel as a 16 year old perhaps this isn't the career for me etc so that's one of the things that we sought to do was to bring that sense of balance because there are amazing women out there who do that but the second thing and this really is an issue is that in some cases some of the science subjects aren't available particularly in all girls schools and I hear this a lot from the teenagers who go on the STEM work experiences that we run is they'll say this is brilliant and I'd be intrigued to do X, Y, or Z, but I can't study such and such a subject. And that's a big issue, Jonathan. Now, of course, you may say, okay, well, the easy answer to that is offer it. And that then comes down to resourcing and so on from a school. But an overall strategic level, that is also a challenge. And then the third thing is there are certainly preferences between the genders of what courses they may like. And we're not here trying to shoehorn anybody into a different area. Be, that they may or that they may not like but instead to simply point out this is the opportunity that's out there when right. i was 16 myself i went on a week uh, a week of engineering in cit as it was known then in mtu at the time as it is known now and and i genuinely hadn't a clue at the time that these types of not just that these courses exist but how they can open doors into other yeah. areas and, and, and that's simply the bridge we see i'd make it very very relevant now, the other thing that i i kind of find beautifully naive is some of the students were saying that oh well i'd love to do this or i'd love to do that but sure what happens then if that job doesn't exist uh, you know if you if you think you're going to be doing the same job when you're 50 that you started out in when you're 18 you know you haven't experienced much of the world we need to tell them relax a little bit as well because you're going to continue to evolve you're going to continue to learn and you know education doesn't stop when you walk out of MTU or UCC that's that's very right I mean I'm smiling there as you say doing the same job at 50 you did at 18 I mean if you're doing the same job at 23 that you might have been starting at 18 even even at that so I agree with you and by the way going back to that study that you quoted at the beginning the number one fear that I see teenagers having is what if I don't like what I do if I study really hard to get there? And that's why, and as you and I both know, Jonathan, the name of the game is all about transferable skills. It is problem solving, it's creativity, it's understanding how a business works. It is communication, of course, and understanding how to communicate in different phases and also handling things under pressure, etc. So because we were, Marguerite and I were very aware of that, and we what we did was we said, right, if we were to put in a model into each one of them, like 
design thinking, that is a set of, of transferable skills between, let's say, engineering and business and product development. Problem solving, we can use that any time, day or night. Lean innovation is another one, and that is how to eliminate waste. So a lot of what you learn within a career like that is very transferable. Okay. So let's say you don't like any of it, none of it, <laughs> except the people that you work with. Well, then there's always a way that you can take that and apply it to a different way, yeah. as long as you've shown the way. Yeah, don't don't forget, you can always move. Uh, that That's the option. You don't have that in school, but you do have it at the workplace. It's out now. The book is called Engineering in the World by Susan hayes Collerton and Marguerite O'Sullivan. Thanks so much for joining us, Susan. Thanks, Jonathan. The menopause and the perimenopause can have a huge impact on the lives of women and thankfully people are now much more open to talk about it, even in a work setting. The Menopause Hub, which was founded in 2019, has opened a new clinic specialising in menopause treatment in Ballincollig and the founder is Loretta Dignam, who's with me now. Hiya, Loretta. Hi there, how are you? Thanks for having me on. It's lovely to talk to you. Why did you decide to open this? I think this is the third clinic you've opened in Ireland and why Cork now? Well, um, when I initially set up, I wasn't sure if um, even the clinics would work or the concept of a clinic would work. But, you know, you write a business plan and I said I'd like to open up some clinics around the country. And my first uh, location was Dublin. My second was Cork. But then COVID happened. So everything was put on the uh, the back boiler and um, or the back burner rather. So um, I have finally we opened a second one because the demand in Dublin was so huge last year in uh, the north side of Dublin near IKEA, and then we opened this one just last week in Ballincollig in in Cork. So I'm thrilled to be down in the Cork area because the Munster region needs um, menopause care. Mm. The menopause is not new. Uh, Women have had it for as long as we have had women. But for some reason, it was one of the biggest taboos out there. Uh, People just didn't want to talk about it. And men in particular didn't want to hear about it, which meant that uh, women felt somehow stigmatised if they'd hit that stage in their life. How are you helping break down that barrier? Well, um, in addition to having the clinics, which um, are about helping women actually transition through menopause and kind of keep their health optimal um, and give them quality of life and so on, that's the practical side of it. The second one is a huge level of advocacy with government and ministers and um, myself and some other people in this space have been banging down the door looking for, um, you know, an awareness campaign, which we now have. Ireland is the first country in the world to have a public awareness campaign around menopause and Ireland and the UK are leading out on menopause in the world um, and menopause in the workplace. So uh, through all of that, through talking to media, through talking to anybody actually who would speak to me because I do think this has been in the dark for far too long um, and something that every woman will experience and yet it's been Mm. taboo and hushed for over 2,000 years. I mean, how can that be? The third area is in the workplace. And in fact, we just held last week the um, first ever Menopause Workplace Excellence Awards, where we awarded 29 finalists and then seven category winners for their work in menopause and the workplace excellence. People are introducing um, awareness sessions, training for managers, training for HR, policy um, development particularly menopause policies, as well as training menopause champions, which are like mental health first aiders. So now we're trying to really push the community in the working space to take this on board because there's um, a risk of absenteeism, of performance issue, of talent retention. Um, and, and it's a risk that has been un- not understood because nobody had looked into it. Yeah. One of the most startling bits of research that I've read recently, 40% of women seriously consider giving up work because they weren't getting help for their symptoms. 
as if it wasn't bad enough with all the challenges that women face when it comes to potential childcare issues or other issues with their health, uh, when they are very much at, at their prime in the workplace, this might come along and, and somehow they feel excluded. I mean, that's just appalling. Myself is a perfect prime example. I mean, I was 49 when I became menopausal and um, it completely blindsided me. I didn't think it would happen. I thought I was too young. Um, I also, um, my children were kind of in their teenage years, so they're coming, you know, towards adulthood. Um, and I thought, you know, here I am just about to enter maybe into the, the peak of my career. I can take on more responsibility because my childcare, um, you know, arrangements were more flexible and so on. And then I was hit by this which I was unprepared for, had no clue about, and it was totally unexpected. I was blindsided. And um, I have to say, I would say, looking back now, it robbed me of about seven to eight years of suboptimal health, of feeling my confidence was impacted, and just, you know, kind of trying to hang on there, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, when women do go look for support in this, obviously they turn to other women, first of all, that 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 can help. But even going to your GP can be a bit hit and miss, depending on how well served that GP is in this particular area of women's health. Is this something that perhaps the workplace could lead on? Oh, I absolutely think um, the workplace can need it. But I do think it's a multifaceted approach. You know, women need to be aware of what's happening to them. Most women think, thought they were going mad because nobody spoke about it. They have all these strange things, symptoms happening to them. Then we have, um, they might go to their GP and some GPs are amazing, are brilliant and are really up to speed and others just aren't. And they go to the GP maybe and they, you know, they're told, oh, it's all in your head or it's stress or it's whatever. And so women say, oh, I must be going mad. So I think we need a multifaceted approach. Awareness um, generally in society, we need males as well as females to be aware. We need um, all the doctors to be trained and to be upskilled and so on. And then we also need the workplace because we have the greatest participation of women in the workplace that we've ever had. Um, and that will continue and pension age is increasing. And so, you know, women will be working more in the workplace for longer and therefore they need support. So it's a multifaceted approach, yeah. I think. Well, a lot of employers listen to this podcast, Loretta. Um, they may or may not have policies in place. What advice would you give them? Um, I, I would say to them, look, you know, it's not as if you've ignored menopause. You just weren't aware of it up until now. And really, it's about time that you become aware. Um, I've encouraged, I encourage organisations, especially the larger ones, to maybe do a survey among their staff, among their managers and so on, to find out how their stats um, stack up versus the national average. Some industries that are very hem- heavily female oriented, for example, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation did research with their members. And what they found out was that 82% of their staff considered, of their members considered giving up work. That's over the, the twice the national average. So it would be interesting to see in your own workplace. And then I would say, look, you know, you can start by introducing the topic. It is a journey, that horrible word, it is a journey. Start by introducing awareness sessions. Once there's an appetite for it, then you can start to introduce things like training for managers so they can feel confident to support their staff and colleagues. Training for HR. There's also a legislative risk, which nobody talks about that much. There's a triple fold increase in tribunals being taken, uh, employment tribunal cases where women, menopausal women, have taken cases and won on the grounds of gender discrimination, age discrimination and disability. Now, we don't want menopause to be considered a disability, far from it. Um, but in Ireland, the interpretation of disability is open uh, is wider mm. than it is in the UK. And um, last year, actually, a cross-party working group in the House of Parliament 
um, took a recommendation to the Equalities Commission asking for menopause to be considered a protected characteristic, which would have big implications in the workplace. And what actually happened was that um, it was rejected the first time around last October, November, because it was ruled that it um, discriminated against men. Now, nobody really understood the ruling, but sure. I guarantee they'll be back um, with a recommendation. And also the UK has appointed a National Menopause Workplace Champion to help organisations okay. um, with this issue. And I've written to Leah Radker and asked for the same in Ireland. Yeah, well, if, if, they, if they need it across the water, they'll need it here as well. I know you're going exactly. to be speaking as well at an upcoming event in Cork City Hall, which is the National Menopause Summit. It's a conversation that is long overdue and happy to say that you're one of the ones leading it. Loretta Dignam of the Menopause Hub, themenopausehub.ie, if you want to have a look and see more details there. Thanks so much for joining us on Red Business. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. Don't forget, our sister video podcast series is up and running. Red Business in Focus on redfm.ie with thanks to Cork's local enterprise offices. Fiona Corcoran was the producer and we'll catch you on the next one. Get the Red Business Podcast every week with Jonathan Healy at redfm.ie and wherever you get your podcasts.